Welcome to OECD Podcast, where policy meets people. Over the past few decades, as trade and investment barriers have lessened and transport and communication costs have declined, multinational enterprises, or MEs, have become an increasingly important fixture in the global economy. In 2021, the top 100 MEs generated over 11 trillion in revenues, equivalent to the combined GDP of Germany, France, Italy, and Spain. As these entities begin to represent a larger share of global economic activity, the importance of monitoring them and understanding their behavior has never been greater. However, MEs cross borders by definition, making them notably difficult to keep track of at the national level. The new OECD UNSD multinational enterprise information platform gathers together data on the world's largest multinationals from a range of public sources. These data cover the geographical and digital scope of individual multinationals and an array of indicators complementing major recent reforms to the international tax system led by the OECD and in response to the challenges arising from digitalization. But what new benefits does this initiative deliver? What does the data reveal and how can it be used for economic analysis? And what does this say about where the global economy is heading? Today, I'm joined by Graham Pilgrim to dive into these questions and more. Thanks, Graham, for joining me. Hi, Ashley. Really nice to be here. So clearly, these huge companies are a feature in all of our lives. I'm thinking about Amazon, Google, Meta, to name a few. But let's start with the basics. And you'll have to humor me on this one. What makes a multinational enterprise a multinational enterprise? Okay, it's essentially a company which is active in more than one jurisdiction. And this can be either through controlled subsidiaries or companies which they own, um, or joint ventures, for example. So let's take the case of your first company, Amazon. They obviously have operations in the US through their company, Amazon, but also Whole Foods, which they recently purchased. Um, but then also they have operations in the UK, in France, and so on. So they're quite clearly present in two countries, and therefore they are a multinational enterprise. The other thing I mentioned before that is something called joint ventures. Now, this mm. is when two companies have joint control of the same company. So a good example of this is something called Serial Partners Worldwide. Now, you may have seen them in your morning breakfast cereal. They make things such as Cheerios, Shreddies, and uh, Nesquik. And this is a joining together of the companies Nestle and General Mills. And this is, for example, we take the Nestle case. This is only a part of their brand portfolio. So Nestle have a huge network of brands and products from everything from coffee, such as the Nespresso pods that you may have uh, early in the morning to maybe chocolates and things like that later on in the day. Oh, okay, so you've clearly got coffee on the mind. I mean, we'll finish the recording first, but then we'll get one of those afterwards. Um, but they're incomprehensibly huge, these entities in the global economy, right? Yeah, I mean, they're huge. So for example, if we take the case of Walmart, which is a large retailer in the US, also owns another brand called Sam's Club as well. Um, the revenue is the equivalent of the output of the entire Finnish economy. So these companies are massive. So they're so prominent and so visible, but I mean, what makes them so difficult to keep track of? And what challenges do we face when we're trying to compile information on these multinational enterprises? It all depends on perspective. So traditionally, our national statistical systems have been developed from the perspective of the country. And this is where these multinational enterprises kind of 
sit outside of this is that it's no longer sufficient just to consider a company from your own perspective. You need to consider it globally as well. And the cases where there is a global perspective for these companies is things like annual reporting. But this is normally to give a perspective, for example, for shareholders to be able to appraise the value of an investment. And then there's various reporting requirements and norms that differ by jurisdictions depending on where this share is listed. So, for example, if we're talking about the declaration of the companies which exist within your large multinational, what would tend to happen for US listed subsidiaries is that you would declare your significant subsidiaries. And the definition of significant, I think it's over 10% of your total group revenue. Mm -hmm. So in the case of a company such as Apple, they only declare something between 10 and 20 subsidiaries as significant. Whereas if, for example, we look at a more kind of European reporting norm, it's more general that you declare all of your subsidiaries. So you have a more complete understanding of the company from this kind of general norm. And I think there's also a question as well of the structure. So these companies tend to be very flexible. They tend to be moving their jurisdiction of production, depending on trying to make their business more efficient. And also with the rise of digitalization, they don't just have to be physical anymore. They could have a digital activity within a jurisdiction. And then that doesn't even count as well things such as mergers and acquisitions. So there's constantly new connections being created. For example, I talked about Amazon and Whole Foods before. So that takeover significantly changes the structure of Amazon and the reach that it has to consumers. I mean, this is clearly an incredibly complex network. Even taking one individual multinational enterprise, it's, it's, it's incredibly difficult to monitor. And, and you've been working on monitoring M&Es for quite a while at the OECD. But the reason we're here today isn't just because of that OECD work. It's because recently we've teamed up with the UN Statistics Directorate who have also have experience in this space to create this joint multinational enterprise information platform. So what fresh insights does this combined effort bring to users? So I think firstly, what this brings is we now have one stable reference point, which is agreed on between both the OECD and the UNSD. And this is a huge benefit for users. They have one unified perspective. And it's also useful for national statistical offices as well. They're able to use this as a basis of discussion. And what tends to happen for a lot of NSOs is information comes into their building and is essentially firewalled. It's no longer able to leave. And having this as a reference base, which is completely open source and free of privacy concerns, means that there's a basis to start discussions from with colleagues internationally without having the danger of potentially divulging information which should not technically leave that national statistical office. Um, and then there's also the benefit from our side. So the production of this data set is a hugely involved process. So there's a number of staff that worked with me in order to produce this information. And it's not just a big data exercise of bringing together information through kind of technological routines. It's also data validation and data collection. And these processes are hugely manual and take a huge amount of time. So therefore, joining forces with UNSD has really allowed us to actually make our processes a lot more efficient. 
and actually think about maybe how we could expand the scope of this for future releases or potentially um, look at new data sources to capture and bring in and then gain future insights. So this is really hopefully the beginning of a fruitful partnership rather than uh, kind of this is a fixed product in stone. Yeah, I mean, ha having this as an, as an open source resource that doesn't have doesn't have these privacy concerns is really important. I know that sometimes at the OECD and when I used to work at the UK Office for National Statistics, it was always an issue whenever you try to talk about an individual enterprise. Normally an individual enterprise would be would be sort of one point in a in a micro data set and and you might not be able to divulge what is the underlying point, but you then have to aggregate it and that that sometimes creates some issues. Yeah, so this open data point is actually really important and it's it's something that has really, really changed in the last four to five years or so. There's a number of players who are really kind of actually driving this, this work forward. And, you know, sort of we're really, really thankful for the efforts of those. So one of those, for example, is Open Corporates, where they've basically put it on themselves to try and compile a publicly searchable business register that operates globally. Um, and this information is key to kind of basically building these information sources and registries further. Uh, it's also not just individual actors, it's governments as well. They're making this information more widely available. So, for example, there's transparency in government contracting, which opens up a whole heap of extra data that we can draw upon. And there's also things like beneficial ownership declarations. So, for example, in the UK, there's the Person of Significant Control database, which lists essentially the beneficial owner of an underlying company. And these are products that didn't really exist sort of five, six years ago. Um, and they really now actually form the bedrock of, uh, of our initiative. And without them, we, we really wouldn't be able to compile the information that we do. Ah, okay. So it's not just OECD and UNSD that are in this partnership. Effectively, it's also these great open data providers that are really contributing to the platform. But I want to come back to something you mentioned earlier, which was this really important distinction between the physical and the digital presence of multinationals. And I want to pull on that thread a little further. So can you give an example or a couple of examples of multinationals that have sort of particularly interesting structures in terms of their physical presence or digital presence, or maybe both? Um, maybe you could cherry pick a couple that our audience might know particularly well. Okay. I mean, I think if we talk about digital, the first thing that comes to a lot of people's minds is probably Google with the parent company Alphabet. And essentially, it's no big surprise here, there is a regionally based Google for basically every country in the world. And for Google, the digital presence is more meaningful than any physical office that they may have around the world. Whereas if, for example, you look at a oil and gas company, the digital presence doesn't really mean a huge lot. These are normally asset-driven uh, businesses with oil fields around the world, and this normally tends to link into their locations of activities. So the thing is, is every company is unique, and it's just being aware of how you kind of use the information here to your specific use case. So while I was doing my homework on all things multinationals, I, I noted a piece written by one of your colleagues, uh, Polina Knudsen, on multinational presence in Russia and how that's changed since the beginning of 2022. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Give us some insights. Okay. I mean, I think first off, 
it's one of the really nice things with this project. Because we have all of these identifiers and it's quite open source, you can join on new data sets. So in, for example, the case of this, we were able to join on a data set which had basically looked at individual MEs and what they had done in response to some of the Russian sanctions that had been imposed and whether they had publicly declared their actions. So, for example, whether they'd withdrawn completely from Russia, they'd reduced operations, or they'd remained the same. And basically, the, the kind of the main findings of the article was it really depended on the headquarters of the multinational. So this is essentially the country where the, where the main operations take place. And those that were kind of more US and European focused tend to reduce their operations more than those that maybe were Asian focused. But then there was also interesting cases as well. So there was a number of companies where it was more of a moral case as to whether they should reduce presence or not. So, for example, you had consumer healthcare providers saying, well, actually, it's not right for us to remove ourselves from Russia because you have consumers who are not necessarily the target of these sanctions. So it's one of those, it really depends, every, every company is unique. Oh, so, I mean, it's good to see that it's not just this core database we're working with, but it's the pieces that you can build on top of that and the blocks that you can add. And that allows for seemingly endless analysis. I mean, when we create a database like this originally, we never really know what crises might arise in future. And so having something that's flexible enough to do that is is really important. So another piece that I saw from a few years ago now shed some light on the intersection between multinationals and gender. Clearly, the increased representation of women at the top of the world's largest companies is an important part of the public discourse on gender equality. And given that there are close to no official data on this issue, what insights can this new platform add to the conversation? Okay, I mean, this. so the data that we used here allowed us to basically join on information that we had on board members to our individual multinational enterprises. And the finding that we had at the top level is essentially that women make up 16% of board members in the top 500 multinationals. So obviously a lot shy of equality. And then added to that, we could then split it a little bit further. So with that data, we also had the date of birth of these individuals. So we were able to kind of look at cohorts as we follow the ages so Mm -hmm. interesting essentially if we look at those born in the 40s the rate was six percent of board members were female and then if we move along a little bit in time um, there is progression so those born in the 70s the rate is currently at around 24 percent so progress is being made but obviously not as fast as we would all like it to be There's also other ways we can look at it. So board structures tend to have essentially representatives of the company and also independents that come in to give their advice. And if we looked at the difference, basically, between representatives of the company and independents, the rate of female participation within the independents is a lot higher than that of the company representatives. So this kind of says that in some ways... Companies are kind of sourcing and bringing in board members from an expert base who tend to be female, and obviously this helps their their numbers, but within their wider management circles, maybe the progress on female representation is not as good. Okay, so it's to some extent you said it improves their numbers, but 
there's this question of whether that's the right key performance indicator, right? Because to some extent, it's more important on the people that are really making the decisions within the company rather than the people that are being essentially insourced, as you might say. Yeah, and the thing is, is I guess, if you look at it, okay, the board is the very top level of the company. And, and what we need to do is we need to look at things going further down in the company and see how diversity changes within particular levels. I mean, there's you know always limits to data that's available. And I mean... We don't want a database of every single person in the world. But if there was, um, then maybe we could shed insights for as to what's happening at particular management levels. You know, is there massive structural breaks, for example, around big life events such as having children and things like this? How does that dynamic change? I mean, these would be really interesting questions that could potentially be answered with data. Um, but obviously, um, there are some limits as to how much we can uh, we can link. Exactly. I mean, it's not it's not just about the questions we want to ask. There's a very fine line between valuable insights and Big Brother to some extent. So my last question looks to the future. During COVID nineteen and in the context of present geopolitical tensions, global supply chains have been heavily disrupted. And we've seen quite a bit of reshoring in some countries. There have also been questions about whether this is the beginning of a more serious stagnation of globalization, maybe. But as someone with your finger on the pulse of these trends, what do we see now? And how can the information that you're compiling in this information platform help us to monitor and navigate these waters? I mean, finger on the pulse might be (laughs) a stretch. But I mean, I guess what we're seeing in the data in some ways is that these big companies are only getting bigger. And, you know, the media headlines that you're seeing, company valuations going over one trillion, you know, incomes expanding massively and things like this. This is only going to continue when these companies are only going to get bigger and bigger and bigger with the mergers and acquisition activity that's going on. I think what we'd kind of say is, yes, there's been some, maybe some change in the universe potentially of the what we would consider the largest firms. So tech firms particularly have recently, with some of the impacts of COVID, become more important for our global economy. I mean, for example, take four years ago, uh, no one would have really talked about Zoom and now it's regularly used and quite important to a lot of people's daily lives. And this transfer to kind of more digital-based activities hasn't just remains within the tech sector. So you've got companies that previously maybe didn't have a direct sales channel uh, in their digital presence are now making options for consumers to be able to purchase directly from them. And this is maybe more of a kind of wide stream adoption of some of these technologies and a kind of understanding, you know, traditional industries can't just remain on a physical basis. They have to adopt these technologies and offer these options to consumers. Yeah, I mean, I think that really that really speaks to me. I mean, during COVID, we clearly saw people shift a lot of their consumption patterns towards technology in both their work time, like you said, with Zoom, but also in their leisure time with increasing use of Netflix and Activision and social media platforms. And now, while lockdown restrictions have started to reduce, now is when we've really seen there to, there to be this sort of readjustment. 
And we've seen layoffs at a lot of these large social media companies and there's sort of this leveling out. Maybe sort of looking at the tech layoff, you know, you mentioned Activision earlier, but they're also in the process of being taken over by Microsoft. Mm. So obviously it's not all just about layoffs at the moment in the tech sector. There is some activity. There are these kind of major acquisitions and, and things. And I mean, I guess this comes back to the point of the database, basically, is that you have to be aware of the whole of the company and the whole picture to really be able to understand some of these absolutely Goliath companies. Yeah, I mean, you're completely right. I just want to thank you for this really insightful conversation. I now have some data to explore, and I know that you launched a Power BI dashboard, so I'll be playing with that for sure. And there's some m es that I can now watch out for and see how they fit into my, into my life. It's clear to me that the new OECD UN multinational enterprise information platform has a real value proposition to a whole range of data users and a unique role in global efforts to monitor multinationals. So thanks so much for taking the time to join me and to share your expertise. Thanks, Ashley. It was a real pleasure having a chat. So I hope to be back soon with another expert OECD statistician. In the meantime, if you want to know more about the work of the OECD and the UN to monitor multinationals, or want to play with some of the data yourself, you'll find everything you need at oecd.org forward slash sdd forward slash ITS. To listen to other OECD podcasts, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and soundcloud.com slash OECD.